So we're talking about humility today, and um, I couldn't have said it any better than those last two worship songs. They were just, I was just so caught up in them. It was beautiful. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, sometimes when when a song like that that comes along, um, and you've prepared things to say after it, you think, oh, what's what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we're looking at Philippians two, uh, chapters, w- well, verses one to eleven, um, and. I think I've got them up on here. Have we got a clicker that I can have? Oh, there it is. Okay. So Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Uh, Therefore, if you have any any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that of the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You can just feel the energy of it, can't you? I'm sort of playing it down, trying not to give my own sort of impression of how it should be read, but actually you can just feel that He's going off on one. He, he's like full of energy when Paul is writing this. Um, okay, I've lost my notes already. So I think first thing I want to say today uh, is thanks for allowing me to speak. And um, I guess until this week, I wasn't really aware of how vulnerable it is to speak in church on the topic of humility. Um Especially uh, in this church, I really, I genuinely think that um, there are people among us in Waterbrook who will, who know humility in a way that I never know in my whole life. Um, so it's quite terrifying, you know, being given this topic. How how does one speak about humility and teach others? Um, and I, I notice kind of in this week that uh, I have this fear, like, and my fear was making a mistake that I would come up here and I would be talking about humility and essentially just be full of myself you know <laughs> just just do do something or say something that was 
actually just uh, not really anything to do with the topic. It's just full of self-interest, selfish ambition, you know, like it says in there. Um, but actually, I'm thankful for all of this because uh, it showed me that um, that's actually pride and that, that pride is holding me back. Um, and I, I realized even though my desire was to serve this morning, uh, I still had that fear. And that fear came from uh, wanting to protect my, um, uh, I guess, like my reputation or like the way, you know, wanting to control uh, how people think of me, how you guys think of me. Um, and that pride is limiting my life. But actually, what's brilliant is that it's a perfect example of uh, the joy and the freedom that comes from Christ-like humility. Because um, if I cling to my, my social standing and I'm obsessed with how I'm, how I'm appearing in front of you and how I'm performing, um, then actually it will become a limitation on my imitation. Um, a hindrance to my happiness and a drain on the fullness of my freedom. Uh, I would be up here terrified. <laughs> and um, actually, the reality is that fullness of life doesn't, you know, it comes from the spirit that's in me. It doesn't come from uh, any of these other things. And it's the spirit in me that I adore and want to share with you today um, uh, that brings fullness of life. And actually, it's not... Uh, I want to point us away from our tendency towards obsessing over our self-image and our status and look instead towards um, replacing that with being connected with God and knowing our identity as God's children. Um, because it sets us free from this desire to acquire status and popularity and importance and significance from the things of the world which pass and aren't really that important. So I want to go through three things. Uh, number one, our culture. Number two, the Jesus mindset. And number three, how can we imitate it? Number one, we're going to start with a bit of social science. Uh just to impress you. Um, now, recently I saw, I saw this, uh, um, this guy speaking about this recent study and it just, I found it so enlightening I thought it would be worth sharing with you today. So there was this study by uh, two social scientists called Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning in 2014 called Microaggression and Moral Cultures. And they kind of outlined these three different types of moral cultures um, which uh, we see uh, in our sort of recent past as society is how we develop, but also like how it's changing into the future. So they say that we used to have something of an honor culture. And in an honor culture, the way they describe it, people so socialize into a culture of honor, will often shun reliance on law or any other authority, even when it is available, refusing to lower their social status uh, by depending on others to handle their affairs. So they won't go to the, the... If someone is offending them or something, they won't go to the police. They'll take it up and they'll say, they'll say, I cannot tolerate a stain on my honour. 
you know it's that sort of gentlemanly uh, almost old-fashioned idea where it's like i cannot tolerate this if someone was to challenge you in a, or insult you in a public forum um you would have to in an honor culture you would have to challenge them until they back down uh or otherwise you lose honor and so you end up in this ridiculous situation where you say i challenge you to a duel and then someone dies over an insult isn't that insane so that's kind of the the honor culture they're talking about where where you have this sense of like honor that needs protecting and you're obsessed with your social standing um and so there are elements in this in our sort of social past but they say actually we've moved more into uh, what they describe as a dignity culture and so dignity exists independent of what people think and so uh, they don't really define necessarily what dignity is but what I'm thinking of is an inherent sense of value that's not uh, connected or derived from external things um, it's actually doesn't matter what people think uh, you, it's not going to affect your sense of dignity and so people in this culture you know they they start to feel that public reputation is slightly less important and actually um, it starts to become commendable to have thick skin you know someone who can receive an insult and say oh, it doesn't matter to me and in these kinds of cultures you you find um, yeah, classically, you know, children are taught some form of sticks and stones would break my bones. It, it doesn't mean that words don't actually hurt. It's more just that there's a general sort of cultural understanding that if you're going to respond to every insult that ever happens or every offence, you're a fool because you're destined for a life of misery where you're constantly self-obsessed and trying to, I don't know, control your life. So... Um, that's kind of maybe you know what you know we see elements of that in our culture too um and then the third thing they talk about is uh what they call a victimhood culture and so um this one they describe as you know it's quite similar to honor culture in that it's uh characterized by concern with status and sensitivity to insults uh but it but differently, it's combined with a reliance on third parties. So if I'm insulted, I'm not going to take it up with you. I'm going to take it up with the authority and get them, get them in to sort you out, basically. And um, so they're in, in this kind of culture, people are intolerant of insults, even if it's unintentional. Um, and they react by bringing it to the attention of the authorities. So uh, in this kind of culture, you wouldn't... You don't emphasize your strength in front of others. You actually instead take on the kind of uh, identity of a victim. And you say, you emphasize your victimhood in this kind of culture. And you say, no, I'm, in order to gain status, I'm actually going to, uh, I guess, kind of attach myself to the label of being the victim. And... Um, this is actually really terrible for people because it makes the those who are already disadvantaged makes them weaker and more passive and dependent on their sort of identity that they've taken on as a victim uh, because there's not really any reason to uh, see yourself as anything other than a victim because by saying I'm a victim you're gaining social status and people are going to be in some way, treating you better. 
Um, so it's a very sort of strange sort of backwards way of doing things. Um, and I think that inherent in it is a kind of re-emerging obsession with status. I say re-emerging as if it completely went away, but that's not the case. Um, and I think that there's something... Uh, I see elements of this kind of culture happening in some parts of our society. Um, I'm not going to go as far as to say where. Some people might be offended. Um, but yeah, I think I think that it's kind of... This obsession with status is also being really stoked by social media. It basically... Um, it basically... What's the word? It kind of... It puts a number on popularity. So literally, you can, you can track how popular you are by numbers, how many likes you have. Um, and it seems to exacerbate all the uh, natural tendencies we have toward competition and comparison and obsession with our social status and self-image. And I think um, part of the reason I bring this up is because I feel very strongly that this is terrible for our young people and it's tormenting them and I think you know in a I, f- I think it's specifically it's worse for young people because they've never had anything but this kind of culture so it's hard to see a way out so it makes them feel desperate and they're desperate for a way to get out of this toxic game of sort of fighting for social status um, and for influence and for significance. And I think what they're terrified of is irrelevance. So we have these kind of... Let me see. Yes. I think it's important to notice that in honour culture and something that's more like a victimhood culture, you've got the struggle for status, and the struggle for status is endless. It leads to eternal conflict and grievance by nature there's never going to be an end to the fighting that you're doing to prove yourself and it's something that we all sort of have a natural tendency to get sucked into um, but it's something we can be set free from absolutely set free from and uh, I had this question um, this question comes to me sorry it's not up there are you tired yet? And honestly, I wish that everyone could be as lazy as I am. (laughs) Because I get tired of this so quickly. And I fall back into it. You know, I fall back into proving myself, you know, to others. Uh, Even, even, you know, in front of those who love me. It doesn't make sense. I find myself just proving myself again and again. And I fall back into it, but I get tired of it quickly. And that is a good thing. Um... You know, just one conversation that's full of me proving myself and impressing someone. By the end of it, I'm just empty. I'm like, oh, I'm drained. (laughs) Um, So this morning, I want us to... What I would love is to open our eyes to these meaningless games. So that we can take all our pieces off the board entirely. Low battery, 5%. (laughs) I better speak quicker. Um, yeah, I want us to take all our pieces off the board because there there is no winning of power and prestige and prominence that comes anywhere close to the fullness and freshness and freedom of being close to God.
nowhere close. And I think you already know this, but as, as citizens of heavenly culture, I think Martin spoke about this a little bit last week, we're playing a different game. And it's one that to everyone else looks like losing. And the great thing, though, is that actually it makes winners of everyone. And it brings us life to the full. Jesus showed us a different way altogether, and it's the way of humility. He is the one of whom we say, this is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him. So the question is, what is the mindset of Christ? So, uh, you've got Paul, he's saying, I want you to take on this mindset. And he kind of describes it with um, something that actually looks more like a hymn than writing. It's got, uh, if you notice right back at the beginning, it's got all these different line endings and stuff which suggests that it it might have been some kind of early creed of the church or a hymn that they used to sing. Uh, Not that that's particularly important, but I think it that's partly what gives it its energy. It's beautiful. It's it's really powerful. Um, and there's so many things we can say about this. You know, I think the words themselves say it best. But I want to try and unpack just uh, three things, three sort of characteristics, um, to give you a sense of of uh, what the mindset of Jesus is like. And so, I think the mindset of Christ is one of unconquerable dignity, loving devotion, and joyful self-giving. So I'll just pick this apart a bit. Unconquerable dignity. I want to start by saying that humility is not about hating yourself, and sometimes we, f- we, we think that, don't we? We think humility is sort of, uh, when someone gives us a compliment, we refuse to take it in because we're too humble, you know? Um, and it's not thinking you're unworthy. Those things are actually just shame. Um, and often what we think of as humility is also actually the opposite. It's a, it can also be a strange form of uh, hidden pride where someone you know, compliments us, for example, and what we do is we pretend not to hear it and accept it, but really we're doing that out of a, a, an awareness of our self-image that we're protecting because we think that if, if we say to them, oh, thank you, yeah, you know what, I am great. You know, let's say someone said, you're, Tom, you're the best speaker ever. Right, I hear it all the time. Um, and out, out of a sense of sort of false humility, what we're actually doing is engaging in hiding our pride. And our pride says, I don't want to admit to you that I know I'm actually really good at what I do, for example. Um, and actually what that is is a hidden obsession with your self-image. And you're not willing to... Uh, just see what the truth is about yourself and state it. So, C.S. Lewis put it really well. He said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I find that's the best definition I've ever heard. I think it's really, really helpful. Um, and I, I think that the only way we can relinquish our struggle for status is and begin to you know, 
and begin to be humble is actually through receiving um, a sense of innate worth that is not earned. And so that's what I mean by dignity. I don't mean a sort of poshness or, you know, whatever. That kind of thing gets associated with dignity, doesn't it? Um, but I, th- I think the path that, that is set out, you know, in, that, in what Paul's written to make yourself a servant requires this kind of unshakable self-worth or, or dignity. And it's, a, a, it's unchangeable. And it's not something that we can earn. Uh, it's actually just who we are. We are children of God. And Jesus knew his identity as a beloved child of God. However you want to say it, like you can say, uh, I'm a child of God. You can say, I'm a temple filled with the Holy Spirit. You can say, uh, I am united with God, or uh, I am made in the image of God. Uh, However you want to say it, I think claiming this truth, uh, that we have an inherent dignity that isn't something we can earn, um, is what makes humility possible. It's recognizing our inherited godly nature that makes humility possible because it, it gives us a, a status or a position that isn't compromised by any like, external situation. So you could put it this way, you know. Uh, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks because I am a child of God. It doesn't matter how anyone treats me. I am made for God. Um, it doesn't matter what your, what my social status is. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. These things are about claiming our inherited birthright, people call it, um, as, as beings created by God. And so, to start... so. Jesus had this mindset himself. He, he was clearly aware of his um, uh, high status <laughs> in the spiritual realm. You know, he knew he was a child of God. Um, and yet, I think we should take note that it was before Jesus started doing any of his work as a sort of traveling rabbi, um, any of his ministry, he heard those precious words this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased that was before he did any of the work and so uh, this is uh, I think where a good place for us to start is receiving and claiming this status for ourselves which is something that God gives us Um, now of course there is a sense here that how on earth can that lead to humility because surely it will just puff you up and make you feel amazing you'll be full of yourself you'll be walking around saying oh, I'm, I'm made in the image of God I don't care what you think um, but actually uh, I think there's a, a key in uh, the passage here uh, so I've you know, I want to point out Jesus' loving devotion here and um, there's this line uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped um, or something to be used to his own advantage 
And I think, uh, you know, at the beginning of the passage here, he's calling us to unity. And I think that's because Jesus' mindset is concerned with unity. It's concerned with uh, loving intimacy with his heavenly father. Um, But if he was after equality, that would require separation. So in order to be equal with someone, you have to be very separate, don't you? You have to be on a level playing field, but them and here, here and here. Uh, It's like the equal sign itself is those two lines which are parallel. It's not one line. Um, So when Jesus says things like, uh, you and I are one, I pray also that they will be one as we are one. Um, He's talking about his complete uh, unity with his father, um, that there's no separation. And, um, you know, for example, if I was to desire to be equal with Jim in accounting, for example, I might absolutely hate Jim. And I might think, I want everything he has. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take his position. I'm going to tear him to the ground. You know, and that's actually seeking a strange form of equality at first because I'm desiring his position but it's only because I want to take and go above him. Uh, and that, I think this, uh, maybe I haven't explained that well. I'm getting a look from Mel. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, I think this desire for equality is the devil's way. Um, and it's the root of domination instead of devotion. And it's about being driven by selfish ambitions. Like, I want to be. Uh, I'm not going to take pleasure in the things for themselves. What I want is actually just to be slightly better than everyone else. I want to be on top. Um, and this is something that is almost like an inherent part of our nature. We would love to compete with each other and try and be on top. Um, and instead, Jesus showed us through his actions and his teaching what humility is. He absolutely shunned fame and public success at times when it didn't, it seemed to make absolutely no sense. Just when his ministry is taking off, he looks around and everyone goes, oh, there's lots of followers here. I know I'll make some of them disappear by making, by tell, reminding them how hard it is to follow me. Um, he carried the glory of his presence into the common daily life. You could say that he was the least common man to have ever lived, and yet he was never above hanging out with common the common people, the common ones. He spent his time with all the misfits and the outcasts and the weirdos uh, at a cost to his reputation and even when it threatened his life. People wanted to kill him just because of who he was eating with. He was always content to be small and to live in ordinariness. He was content to work in the secret place where no one noticed He spent 30 years as an unknown carpenter in the middle of nowhere. And that was God's plan. And not a single moment was wasted. If we can't find Christ in the common things of our everyday, in in each interaction with each person, then it's going to be harder, actually, to find him in the big things. And I've, I've had these yearly aims for oh, something like eight years now. 
and basically at the beginning of each year I come up with a set of aims for myself which are like big picture thinking and um, it's because I'm traditionally unambitious I thought to myself I need some bigger goals that I, I won't get distracted from and it's been great you know it's actually quite positive um, but what I found through these 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 ambitions is I, I took they, they gradually took my mind off the small things and they made me um, see the smaller sort of everyday ambitions as or everyday um, sort of being where I am as less important you know it's it's hard to be in a conversation with someone who um, is sharing uh, I don't know telling you their life story when you haven't asked for it when actually in the back of your mind you're thinking I'm, I've got these big plans God, God wants me to fulfill you know I'm, I'm too important for this is certainly what, what sneaks into the mind I'm too important for this conversation um, so I found this happening to me and so um, yeah in, in my preparation for this I realised that Jesus is God of the small things you know he he loved the little things. There's nothing in the life of Jesus that gives us any excuse to despise or avoid the small tasks. And it seems that uh, godliness always starts small. You know, he says all of his images about the kingdom of God are, you know, a small seed dies and a huge ministry grows out of it as a tree. So. I hope I hope you're still with me. I'm trying to give you a sense of um, what Jesus' mindset was like, the things he valued. Um, and so, to sort of sum up this this part of like he's lovingly devoted to God um, is that he he served by seeking to express his dignity, not earn it. And that's something that we need to focus on too. Um, express his dignity, not earn it. Um, and thirdly, you know, joyful self-giving. Uh, I've put joyful self-giving because we can give of ourselves in slavish, uh, I don't know, uh, resentful manners, can't we? We can be an unjoyful giver, can't we? And actually, deep down, what, you know, what's going on is not, uh, is not the mindset of Christ. Uh, so Paul used this word, kenosis, in that chapter. Uh, and so the, the point when he says um, he emptied himself uh, and made himself nothing, there's the word kenosis in there. Kenosis is self-emptying. Um, so Jesus' mindset was not slavish or resentful or proving himself he was sacrificial and driven by this loving devotion that he had to his heavenly father and he emptied himself from what he'd received Uh, whatever power he received from God he used it to lift others up so um, if we look back at what Paul's saying if you have any encouragement if you have received anything uh, that uh, is a deposit from God into you, 
then start to put it into practice. Use it. Share it with others. Um, give yourself joyfully. Uh, give what God's given you to others. Um, he used what he was given to lift others up. He did not cling to his rights, but he laid them down in powerful acts of sacrificial love. And that's why we say he, he's our, this is our God, the servant king. He's made himself a servant. Uh, and he didn't make himself a slave necessarily. Made himself a servant, willing servant. Um, I got sort of a side note here about competition, because I think we all like. There's quite a few of us. I personally don't have a very competitive spirit, um, but I love those who do. I think it's really, really good. And there's no. Uh, Whenever there's sort of advice about this in the Bible, they always encourage that competitive spirit, but just turn it around. So, you know, the disciples come to Jesus and say, who's going to be the greatest out of us? You know, who's going to have the best social position in heaven? And he says, if you desire to be the greatest. He doesn't say, stop trying to desire to be the best. He says, if you desire to be the greatest, you must become the least and serve. Uh, And so that should be what, what we do with our competitiveness. Um, and you know, Paul says it in in other ways. He says, "Honor one another above yourselves." And if you've ever been in an environment where people are trying to do that, it's amazing. It's that competitive, competitive honoring. It's absolutely. It totally works. It just it sort of empties the community of competition or or uh, sort of um, self obsession by uh, collectively honouring. It's, it's genius. It's genius. Um, and that is the kind of self-giving mindset I think that Jesus set out for us. So how do we have this in our relationships? Uh, I came up with this sort of little parable I'm going to try with you. How long have we got, Tony? It's sort of 12.07. Soonish. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll just share this little parable thing. So I I think that the honor and dignity that we received from our identity as God's children is like um it's like a father putting a crown on his child's head. And it it makes makes him feel royal and respectful. And he puts his shoulders back and lifts up his chin. Uh, and he feels like a million pounds, you know. He feels like a like genius. And he wore it everywhere he went. Until one day the boy came home um, to his father without it. The father asked, what happened to your crown? The boy replied, another boy stole it and smashed it on the ground. Oh no, would you like me to make you another? The boy thought for a little moment and said, No, because when he stole it, took it off my head, it still felt like it was there. So I realized that I still felt the same. And that he is the one 
Who needs a crown to feel important now? And then the father beamed from ear to ear and said, let's make, him sh- let's make him one, shall we? So I think God's love to us is like this. It doesn't, it doesn't really... M- we can get our crown from uh, all aspects of our uh, devotion to God, you know, in, in church, uh, worshipping. Um, but actually, remember that the crown of, of God's love is a gift that makes you see what you don't really need. I shouldn't say the crown of God's love. The crown of God's sort of dignity, that sort of royal position, is actually, it enables us not to need uh, to be concerned with our status. Because actually what we need is to be with our Father. And when we wear when we feel that way, we are with our Father. It's meant to change us like a little boy so that we can share our God-given dignity with those who are still caught up in the lust for honour and power and status and that kind of significance. So, um, actually, I did have a few points, you know, that I was thinking of. How can we, how can we get more of this in our relationships? But... Uh, I just don't think they're very important. And um, I think we have really genuinely humble people in Waterbrook. And so I want to thank you all for inspiring me in this and um, embodying it for me. Um, and I'm particularly grateful to leaders like Tony and Joy who just consistently you know, embody this for us. Even though if there is any sort of hierarchy in Waterbrook, they're kind of up there. So, thank you, God. So I've got um, a little prayer. It's a prayer of St. Francis. Has anyone ever heard of it? Um, sometimes it comes from that, uh, there's a song where you sing it. Uh, and I think it's just a, a beautiful model of humility. So I'll just pray it now, if you want to pray along with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you.